Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Black woman. Beautiful. Powerful. Resilient female of African descent with skin kissed by the sun. Conversation. A talk, especially an informal one, between two or more people in which news and ideas are exchanged. We love being black women. Black women are ambitious. Black women are confident. Black women are diligent. We are tenacious. We walk out of our houses put together. We are many shades and personalities of fabulous. But we as black women don't talk about our dilemmas, current events, and what's going on every day that affects us. So... We created this podcast as a way to laugh together, cry together, and have an open conversation about life as black women. Oh, that's deep. Black Women Conversations. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Janine. How's your week been? The week has been interesting. So I am, last week I was on call. And this week I am in my last week of in-person clinic at my job. So it feels sort of kind of good because now I know that there's like an endpoint to it all. But I did agree to stay on and do some things virtually to help people out because we'll be short this summer. So I'll still be around um, doing some stuff virtually in Houston, but it feels sort of kind of good. Uh, now, of course, with all the devastation that we'll talk about this this episode, it's, it's definitely made life a lot harder, right? Like a, a lot, lot harder. But you know, we're making it. I mean, we've been dealing with things in Texas for a really long time. So we're just going to keep on keeping on. Our house will be listed next week. So we're excited. We met with the realtor yesterday and um, he went over the comps, went through and told us what we needed to do and really don't have to do too much to get our house ready. So we're just waiting on the photographer to come to give us, you know, take pictures and then we're out. But, you know, one thing, like I was telling Kim before we started the show, you know, our realtor is an African-American man. So he's the husband of a sorority sister of mine. And he goes, you know, he's walking around the house. I mean, just all prim and proper. I mean, they had just came from church. She came. So his wife came with their two twins, their twins to play with Harrison. And I mean, he's professional. You know, Michelle, the, the soror, she changed clothes. She was like, girl, can I use your bedroom? Let me change these kids' clothes so they won't get chalk all over them. I'll go ahead. So they're making themselves at home comfortable. But this is my first time meeting him. But he kept his full suit on, honey. And, you know, he's walking around the house. You know, tell me what you like about the house. You know, tell me what sticks out to you about your house. And, and uh, he's so professional. And so I'm like, well, let me put my white voice on too and be professional, you know. And we get downstairs to the front and he goes, all right, Chuck, we're black. So what y'all going to do about these pictures? Y'all going to take them down? Y'all going to leave them up? Like, what are you going to do? And my husband's just looking and I'm like, we, we're going to, we're definitely going to take them down. It's sad that you have to do that kind of thing, Janine, but it's, it's true. And if we hadn't had an African-American realtor, you know, 
the Caucasian woman might not have told us, and it may have taken a longer time to sell our house. So, yeah, we're taking them down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always remember. So people don't think that that's a real thing, right? But I always remember the story of the couple who went to go sell their house, and it came in appraised hundreds of thousands of dollars less than their neighbors who were, I think, two or three doors down, and they had more space, right? And they literally took all of their, anything that resembled them being black, meaning any like, you know, fraternity sorority things, any pictures, they put up stock photos, and then suddenly their house appraised for more. So your realtor did you a solid, and yes, I agree. It is sad that we have to do this, but look, the tricks of the trade, we've been playing this game a long time, we've mastered it. So let's put those stock photos up and make it seem like a good, a good clean family living there, the good clean, and then, you know, get your house sold for premium price. I'm here for it, especially in Texas, girl, especially in Texas. Yeah, right now, Texas is up by 36%. Listen, when he told us what he wanted to list our house for, I said, wait, say what? Say what? Come again? Well, we gonna go with your price. We gonna go with that. And we're gonna let that, let it roll for two, three weeks and see if it's still on the market. And then if it is, we can always drop the price. But I'm here for, for the higher price. I'm, I'm here for it. Let me tell you. So I had a, an event that was for realtors on Saturday, right? And it was actually really interesting because Ken and I have been going back and forth about the condo in Atlanta. And Ken was like, has been telling me like, oh, I don't think we should sell it. I don't think we should sell it. And I've been gung-ho about like, it needs to go on the market. Like, put it on the market. Let's be done with it. Like, I'm over it, right? And I talked to this realtor. I think that, and we probably need to have a realtor on at some point, but I think that we always underestimate ourselves because we are just so used to things probably not going in, you know, the way that we anticipate. But he was like, you have a property in this zip code? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, no, don't sell it something like 80% of the people in the, that particular zip code, now this is Midtown Atlanta, are renters. So why would you sell? Like, you would be nuts to sell. And I'm like, okay, so of course I come home super excited to Ken and like, hey, he said da da da. And Ken is like, I've, I've been telling you that. So at some point, I think we should have a conversation about the things that we don't know as Black people about about the, the real estate market. No, I'm here for that. Like, because I really want to get into some investment properties. So that would be great to have someone on board that can tell us like, this is how everybody that's successful has navigated this little, this little piece, like to have like an Airbnb. Like I would love to do that. Just to have some passive income, even if it's just like, oh, well, this is going to be rented out just like a week a month. I mean, that's enough to carry your mortgage. Yeah. And remember when we had the um, expert on about generational wealth, he said there's two easy ways to get generational wealth. One is insurance and the other one is home ownership. So if we plan on leaving something to our little ones, or if I plan on leaving something to your little ones, then, you know, I have to do something because I'm not just going to get wealthy just looking at the money and saving it like we were raised to do. No, you are you are absolutely right. They do teach us just to save money. I wasn't taught that because I've been moving big chunks around, honey, just moving them all around. Let me see how they'll grow. I'm going to get it back. I'm just going to move it around for a little bit. And I think when you're young and you're making a decent amount and you have a savings, it's better to be riskier up front, right? Now, if I were 
because I'm about to be four. I'm about to be 40, y'all. I'm about to be 40. But if I were 60, I may not make the same moves as I'm making now. Now, if somebody asks me to invest in something and I'm going to get back, you know, 12%, 15% on the investment, and then I'm like, you know what? If you tell me I'm going to get this back plus 15% more in two years, that's not a bad deal. It's not like I'm using it. I might as well go ahead, lend it to you and get it right back and make a little change off of it. But if I'm 60 or 65 and I know I don't have the same income or if I'm about to retire in a couple of years and be on a fixed income, well, you can't really make those types of moves. So let me make more moves while I can now. Hmm. Let's go on and talk about what's on your timeline. Now, Nicole, I'm going to, and I think I said this the last time that we talked about abortions. You and I, when we started this podcast, said that this was going to be a topic that was off limits. We agreed that we would not talk about things like abortion. Very specifically, I think we talked about like certain aspects of our personal lives and abortion. And we have since amended that agreement because of everything that is going on and because of these and I'm going to say it, these old white male lawmakers that insist on keeping this at the forefront of conversation and making the worst possible decisions for us. So if it affects us, we talk about it. And it just so happens that today we're going to talk about it. So Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is the landmark decision that was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court on June 24th, 2022, just last week. In this decision, the court held that the United States Constitution does not confer any right to an abortion, thus overruling both Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a landmark decision in 1992, and Roe versus Wade, a landmark decision in 1973. Now, this all started back in 2018. The case was about the constitutionality of the Mississippi law that banned most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Now, let me go back for a second. Do you remember, Nicole, when we talked about Amy Coney Barrett? Remember, she's the justice. I know you know who I'm talking about. I'm kind of being facetious as I'm saying this, but like, remember, she's the justice that Trump pushed through at the very last minute and just, she had so few qualifications and there there was just so much hype around her and negative hype to be very honest well that same justice amy coney barrett the one who has been consistently outspoken against abortion i would say that she was pretty integral in using this particular case as a vehicle to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, we kind of saw this coming with her, but we, I, I will say this, I did not see it happening this soon. So, so this is a reminder of why voting in all elections is critical. So not just your national elections when we're voting for president, but the local elections. So we have 20 states that before the actual decision was made on the 24th by the Supreme Court, that had already prepared legislation in anticipation of Dobbs versus Jackson overturning Roe v. Wade. 
13 of which had trigger laws. And for those who don't know what trigger laws are, they're essentially laws that can't currently be enforced because there's a law that is a national law that prevents it from being enforced. But it's a trigger law because once that national law changes, then it can then be enforced locally or on a state level. So those 13 states that had trigger laws, that essentially the moment that Dobbs versus Jackson overturned Roe v. Wade, those states automatically had laws that were in place that changed the accessibility of abortion. And those states are Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. So what does this mean exactly? So I'm going to let you get into it a little bit more in depth, Nicole, but a brief overview. So this means that abortion rights are now up to each individual state and the state's lawmakers to make a decision as to whether abortions are legal, illegal, accessible, or inaccessible. This, I would like to clarify, does not mean that abortions are illegal in all 50 states. This is a common misconception, and there are many states that still allow abortions, even some into the third trimester. So abortions will either be illegal or severely restricted in 20 states. And for the 13 aforementioned states with the trigger laws that will essentially, like I said, make abortions immediately illegal, those states, they're kind of stuck in limbo right now. And the majority of the people who would seek access to abortions are looking for alternate measures of how they can obtain an abortion in another state. So the 20 states and the nation's capital will continue to protect abortion rights. That means that while approximately 25 million women of childbearing age that reside in those 20 states that I mentioned that restricted abortion rights and the 13 that have trigger laws will either have to abide by the laws or seek abortion elsewhere, there are also 26 million other women of childbearing age that will continue to have access to abortions. So we always want to end on a positive note, and I will say this. Abortion laws in states that allow for abortion, that did not put trigger laws into place and have no intention of restricting, further restricting abortions, are expected to become more expansive with their abortion coverage. So some would say that they're considered more lenient so that people do not have to be restricted to a specific time that they are permitted to have an abortion, as well as specific areas that they're permitted to have abortion. So some states like California, Oregon, and Washington have proposed things like copay elimination for abortion services, travel cost funding for those who have to travel from out of state to their state to obtain an abortion. And they also are looking to incorporate the abortion rights into their state constitution so that they can preserve a woman's right to have an abortion in perpetuity. So long past the lawmakers that, you know, lives, life spanned, long past whatever is taking place 
politically in those states, they're looking to put things in place in the state constitutions that will continue to allow women to have abortions well past their tenure. Now, Nicole, as a women's health expert, I know that you probably have a very, very strong opinion about this. And you probably also have a very different side about this because I'm just giving the law and the the information that I read and have been studying for this episode. But I kind of want you to give us the information about what this means for our bodies. So, Nicole, what what does this mean for us? So, um, unfortunately, it means that we honestly don't have the right to choose what happens to our bodies in a number of states. You know, like you said, there are some states that will have be considered safe haven states. But the thing that those safe haven states are doing is bracing themselves because if they have so many people that are coming from other states to get services, then they're not going to have enough access for their own patients. And so it'll take a longer time to get access. And we know the longer you have to wait for a termination, the more expensive it is and the more complicated the procedure can become. And I know some people, because I'm literally pregnancy pros, I'm about to go on a soapbox at the beginning of this because people have literally tried to come for me um, over the last couple of days because of me simply putting out information. Okay. Meaning, oh, you're supposed to be in the business of pregnancy, not helping people in pregnancies. So uh, that kind of silliness is absurd. I'm in the business of helping people get safely through a pregnancy. And if someone has had a history of a heart attack or a stroke or they have cancer and they find out they have cancer and they have to decide whether or not they're going to end the pregnancy and get chemo that's first line versus getting second or third line chemo that's not as harmful to a pregnancy but may not be as curative to them. Why would they have to make that decision to choose? Like now they don't even have have that decision to make, not in the state of Texas and and basically most of the South, because we don't have the right to choose our own own care. And people say, well, that's that's a scare tactic. That's an exception to the rule. No, not with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It does not make any exceptions to states that ban abortions. It's almost unfair. Like you banning abortion with no exceptions then you're leaving up to the other states who are then going to become inundated with a whole bunch of people who have access issues, which are primarily people that have money to be to to go to those states. Right. Then all of a sudden, those states can't cover the costs. Right. Then what happens? Clinics shut down. People don't have access. You know, they don't have the resources. They shut down. And then that creates more of an access issue. So when you're talking about people that have cancer, but they need to plan more. Well, no, sometimes you get pregnant and then you find out something's wrong with your body. You may get pregnant and then we do a breast exam before age 40 because you wouldn't have had a mammogram and self breast exams in the shower are no longer recommended. We just recommend that you know your body. But before you used to lather up and make sure you're feeling your breast every shot, we don't recommend that anymore because people were basically overreacting and they, every little thing they felt, then it was, oh, we need to do a breast ultrasound and the mammogram. And that was driving up the cost of healthcare. So now it's just recommended to know your body, right? So sometimes in a pregnancy, that may be the first time that somebody that's 30 has had a full breast exam. And uh, it could be the first time somebody's had a pap smear if you're 21. So what if we find out you have cervical cancer when you go to your first visit? What if we find out you have a breast tumor 
that we then need to biopsy and then you find out you have cancer. What if? And I think that it's the what ifs that don't allow the exceptions to the rule that people that are so one track minded don't understand. It blows my mind. It's almost like, you know, that little baby that was in the back seat. It was years ago and how the mom was trying to get her to do something. And she said, worry about yourself. Worry about yourself, mommy. You know, worry about yourself. You know, if you don't want to terminate, that's fine. If you are so blessed that you that you don't think anything will ever happen to you, then that's fine. If you would decide to have life-threatening cancer and carry your baby, that's you. You decide that. But to take that choice away from somebody is ridiculous. And then people are forgetting about the management of ectopic pregnancies. And the reason that they're forgetting is because in the OB world, we don't even consider that as pregnancy. We don't really manage a lot of ectopic pregnancies. The gynecologist side of the OBGYNs do that because we know that that is not something that we're treating as a pregnancy that will go on to be a viable baby, meaning a baby that lives without you. But it's still fetal cells with the heartbeat that's in a tube. So then if you're in a state that can't stop a heartbeat and the law doesn't allow for exceptions of stopping that heartbeat because that's considered a termination or your doctor will lose their license or better yet go to jail, then what happens? You got somebody that's a ticking time bomb. Y'all, an ectopic pregnancy is literally a ticking time bomb because we have no idea when that tube's going to rupture. We have no idea. And if that tube ruptures, like when somebody comes in, they're in agonizing pain, we do a, a, a quick bedside ultrasound and we see blood in the belly. We're like, oh my God, she's an ectopic pregnancy. Call a mass transfusion protocol because she needs blood now. Well, now we have to sort of wait for something to happen. We wait until it's ruptured for us to go in which you can see if we're waiting for something catastrophic to happen, that is going to make women are going to die with this new law because of the exceptions. It will be enough for them to say, hey, we want to ban all abortions that are what's called an elective abortion, meaning I happen to have a good night. Somebody got lost in the sauce and I got pregnant, right? That sometimes I can understand. I don't even understand that. Let me be clear. But I could see if people were putting restrictions on that, like, hey, after this gestational age, you should have made up your mind whether you're going to terminate this baby. I can understand that. But what I can't understand is the lack of exceptions for, oh, ectopic pregnancies. Oh, I got raped. And now I don't know who the father is. And I'm carrying this person's baby. You know, that's just mind blowing. And then all of these red states that are just gung-ho trigger laws, okay, for this abortion ban, or the same states that don't want insurance companies to fund birth control, that's going to be on the chopping block next, don't want to fund birth control, and then you want to cut WIC, you know, you want to cut funding low-income parents. Wait, so you're forcing them to have their children, but then you don't want to help anybody take care of the children, that they say they couldn't have. And you don't want to qualify these mothers for Medicaid that need life-saving treatments for cancers and things like that, in addition to their children. It's just, it's to me, it's just crazy. Like you don't want to help 
but you want to force somebody to do something they can't afford to do. It's crazy to me. So one of the things that I keep seeing that keeps resonating with me is we want all of these kids to be born, right? Which look, I'm pro-choice a hundred percent of the time. It's your choice, your body, you do with it what you want. Am I, you know, a huge proponent of people having, as you put it, Nicole, elective abortions? No. But this is the the problem that I have. Like you said, you're not giving them health care. You're not giving them universal health care. You're not giving them any free food. I mean, let's be honest. There's no formula on the shelves. We are not providing a, an environment in which people want to even bring kids into the world. All of the problems, all of the way that that we handle Every single instance is disturbing. But the one thing that I keep seeing that resonates with me so is that we're so gung-ho about bringing these kids into the world, right? Like the lawmakers are like, you have to bring this kid into the world. But you refuse to protect them from their school being shut up by a school shooter because you refuse to make laws about gun control. That, to me, tells you that this doesn't have to do with the safety or the welfare of kids like they're trying to make it out to sound like, right? It really has to do with what their interest is, right? Let's go back to our first episode when we talked about this, right? The reason why initially abortion was banned was in this country was because there were not enough white women having children. This doesn't have to do with us. They don't care if we reproduce, we don't reproduce, we have an abortion, we don't have an abortion. It, it's not about us. It's about them and their population, right? It's disturbing because you bring kids into a subpar environment, all medical situations aside, you bring kids into a subpar environment, and then what? Then you complain about how these quote-unquote poor kids over here are causing a problem or these people over here are having too many babies, but you're not allowing them access basic access to make the decision as to whether they want to bring a child into the world. And I'm sorry, but it's very rudimentary concept of, hey, everyone is responsible for themselves. I can't control you, Nicole. You can't control me, nor should I want to. If it's my decision to do with my body what I choose to do with it, what does that have to do with anyone else? It's not affecting you. It's not affecting the lawmakers. It's not affecting anyone. I can do with my body with with what it what I choose to. Very simple principle. I just don't get it. Like I don't understand why the government feels that they have the right to tell women or people that are able to bear children what we can do with our bodies. It's crazy to me. And if men could have children, if these lawmakers could give birth, I bet you it would change. Let me tell you something. Abortion is going to happen. It's safe abortions that aren't going to happen. Even when abortion was illegal, people were still having abortions. But then there were septic wards of all these women that had had these botched abortions because somebody gave them some bad juju to drink or put some device or clothes hanger in there to get rid of the baby. People will be desperate to end a pregnancy. You can't make people want to be pregnant if they don't want to be pregnant. 
So I think people think that, oh, banning abortion is going to make abortion go away. They've lost it. People are going to have abortions. It's just that now people are going to die having abortions because it's not safe. People are going to get infected. If you get if you get an infection inside of your uterus, it is life threatening. Even now, one of my coworkers was saying, hey, he got consulted because somebody had what's called chorioamnionitis, which is just an infection of the fluid around the baby. Right. She was very early in her pregnancy and he was telling them, go ahead and deliver her. And they said, no, that's an abortion. That would be terminating the life of the child. And the law just changed Friday. And he said, no, but this is the situation because you have to deliver the baby to save the mom or she can get septic. Patients and I see you right now, septic. He said they waited five hours just wait in the OR before they allowed them to proceed with it. You got the OBGYN saying, let me deliver my patient. You got the high risk specialist saying, let me deliver my patient. You got the ethics board involved that says it's okay to deliver. The nurses were like, no, no, no. You know, so it depends on, you got to get your whole team on board now to actually provide the care you need for some patients. And she had a clear indication to go ahead and be delivered. And now she's intubated in the ICU because she's septic because they did not treat her fast enough. And antibiotics don't get it. Like you can't treat sepsis with antibiotics when the source of the infection is still there. You have to try to remove the, the source of the infection first. It's almost like you have an abscess and you're trying to treat with the antibiotics. Well, guess what? You're going to have to lance that abscess for those antibiotics to be able to penetrate the depths of that infection. Same thing with an infected uterus. You got to get rid of the source of the infection. And I mean, just so frustrating. This is the world we're in that even if you have an indication to proceed with delivering because it's life threatening, people are cautious to make a move when that heartbeat is still going. Let me tell you how disheartening that is. And I'll go back to the first point because you made some really great points of this. But let me tell you how disheartening this is. The fact that you just told that story hit me for two two reasons. One, as you know, Nicole, I had a surgery to get rid of my fibroid and caught sepsis and was out for almost a year because it was antibiotic after antibiotic. They thought they had found the infection, didn't find it. And I was like almost 14 antibiotics in before I was actually getting better. So that's very real. And the fact that it could have been prevented and she's sitting in the hospital in the ICU with sepsis, like that is crazy to me. It's almost like on one hand, they're like, oh, we're worried about the baby and lives and we're pro-life and pro. But are you, though? Because you're now putting the mother's life at risk because you want to be pro-life for a baby that's probably not viable, I would assume. That's the first part. The second reason why it resonates with me is, as you all know, that my Nana that's how she passed away. So there's nothing that anyone will tell me that will make me believe that there's a reason why a woman should be risking her life, knowingly risking her life when there's something that can be done to save her. And, you know, honestly, the child isn't here yet. Like I, I understand people's view about it's a heartbeat and all of that, I get it. Can we not put things into perspective and use essential situational awareness? If something is happening, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, and that's that's the reason why. But 
you made a great point. Abortion is not going to stop because it's illegal. That's not how this works. It's just going to become more deadly. I'm very fearful because one, situations like you just spoke about where a young lady is now in the ICU because it's considered an abortion. And two, because as you said, people have been getting back alley abortions for years, even with abortions being legal. Just because they're legal doesn't mean they're accessible. Let's be honest. There are factors in people's lives that that prevent them access, transportation, finances from getting an abortion. So they prefer to do back alley abortions. That is not going to stop. So now you have this group of people who already had a difficult time accessing abortions while they're legal. You're now just placing an additional hurdle on them. I, I just don't like it. And there's no way that you're convincing me that this is about people valuing life because it's not. It's absolutely not. It's about people valuing control over other people. That's how I see it. I definitely, definitely agree with that. You know, I don't even really, I've never gone to a show and not wanted to help people talk through some things, but I know this is going to upset me. But, Johnny, let's let's talk through some of these letters from our listeners. So um, my letter reads, Nicole and Janine, I'm 13 weeks pregnant and my husband and I found out a little over a week ago that our baby was missing part of the brain and skull due to a condition called anencephaly. We were in total shock and extremely upset. Our high-risk pregnancy provider gave us all of our options. I wanted to have an abortion because I didn't want to have to carry a baby I knew wouldn't survive. Plus, babies born full term have to either have a funeral or cremation according to the hospital policy, and I couldn't bear to go through that grieving. My husband, on the other hand, wanted to wait to make a decision. He wanted to talk to his pastor and more family first. My physician said it wasn't a rush and that we had time to decide. So we scheduled a follow-up appointment a week later to tell her what we decided. After talking to my husband and family, we decided that the best option for us was to end our pregnancy. We talked with our seven-year-old and told her the baby was going to heaven soon. We arrived for the follow-up consult and told our doctor our decision. She dropped her head and paused. She told us about the recent overturning of abortion via Roe v. Wade and abortion in our state was immediately banned. She encouraged us to seek care if we wanted to end the pregnancy in another state, but that she couldn't assist us in the process of doing so. I contacted several clinics, including one I was told about in Colorado. Since I was already over 13 weeks, the cost would be about $1,500. The further along I waited, the higher the cost would get. The termination isn't covered by insurance, of course. Then we would have to factor in the cost of two last-minute flights and two nights stay at a hotel. After doing the math, the minimum that we'd have to pay out of pocket was about $4,300. So I have to decide, do I try to scrape up this money and risk not being able to pay something? Or do I continue the pregnancy and go through grieving and then have to incur the cost of a funeral? Also, I now despise my husband for making me wait that week. I'm afraid if I carry the pregnancy and have to hold and then bury my child, that'll end our marriage. I'm so confused and pissed and upset. I'm not sure what to do. Ladies, please be the voice of reason. I am just feeling for you and just know that you are and your husband and your entire family are in my thoughts and prayers. And I want you to understand that everything that you're feeling is perfectly okay. Don't apologize for your feelings. Don't regret your feelings. Feel all of the feelings because that is how you 
will get through this. But I would like to tell you, try, and I know it's probably very, very difficult, but try not to resent your husband. You and your husband are navigating this very difficult situation together, and there's no way that he could have predicted that this would happen, nor is it his fault. And while I understand that the circumstances are very, very bad, I don't think that it's fair. And I know that life is not fair because you're in the situation, but I don't think that it's fair to put that much pressure on your husband. Your husband was doing what he knew to do in this situation. He was making the best decisions that he knew to make in this situation. There was no malice or ill intent. It was just him trying to grapple with what was going on with his wife and his family and handle it and deal with it and consult the people that he felt comfortable with because he didn't know what to do. And the fact that our silly government has made this decision isn't your husband's fault. And in this time, you all really have to stick together. You have to love one another and hold one another and understand that you are in this really bad situation together and that the two of you are going to make it through this together. Now, with that being said, if at all possible, please, please go to another location and find a provider that will carry out the wishes that you and your husband have agreed to. It's already hard enough that you're going through this, right? This is not something that you want to compound by the terrible decisions that our government has made. I really, really want you and your husband to stick together. And I know that it's hard and I know that you're probably feeling all of the feelings on top of the fact that you're pregnant, on top of the fact that you're experiencing a loss, on top of all of this. It's just feelings of what is going on and it just feels so, so out of control. The one thing that you can control is the love for your husband and you can control the way that you stick together and the way that you handle the situation together. I agree. Um, I do think it is her body. And, you know, while I do think that most men should be like, whatever you feel comfortable with, I do also realize that it is his baby too. Okay. We just did a pregnancy pearls episode on this very subject. And you guys are sharing in the decisions made for your child, especially if this is a child that is very much so wanted by both parties. It seems like this child was definitely wanted and people deal with things differently, right? Like we talked about last episode about the love languages. Everybody feels love and receive, you know, receive that love differently. Everybody deals with grief differently as well. And once you are talking about a baby that is not going to live, for me, that starts the grieving process. Because then in your mind, you have to come to terms with the fact that this child is not going to be what you thought it was going to be. This child is not coming home with us. The excitement and the preparation we're going to do for our, this child is not like we have for our last seven-year-old daughter. So it is a grieving process that you're already going through. And for some people, they're able to sort of wipe the, the, the fog away to make a direct decision. And for other people, they're confused. I mean, that's why when I give people bad news, I call them the next day and I say, hey, I'm just trying to call and check on you. What did you hear me say? Because once you give people bad news, all of a sudden, they're, they're, nothing else you've said is penetrating their brain. So I do agree. Give your husband some grace because he had to deal with things in his own way. And seeing as how he had to go talk to his pastor for him, it may have been a religious uh, guilt that he would have felt. Had he decided to terminate without that, you know, that insight from his religious leader. So I would definitely 
tell you to show your husband some grace because he's grieving too. Now, in terms of scraping up this $4,300, listen, when you talk about the cost of the hospital bill, the copay, the cost of burial expenses, you know, that is a lot. In addition to, you may not have to pay that all up front at 4,300, but you're gonna pay more than that to get the child here. So I think that as a lot of minorities, if you're limited on your resources, you're like, oh, I can't possibly do that. Let's think outside the box about how we can get these resources. One, a lot of clinics do have financial assistance programs, some of which that make you pay based on your income, others of which make you pay a deposit. You can make payment even after you get your procedure. Some have financial assistance, so you don't have to pay anything. So talk to that clinic about, hey, are there some financial uh, planning programs that I can go through to get this done because this is my situation. It's the time to be transparent with people and let them know, let them know your situation so they can help. Number two, I'm not telling you to tell everybody your business, but if you're already talking to family and friends about this and now they know this Roe v. Wade, because everybody knows this Roe v. Wade thing is happening. Unless you've been in a shoebox under the bed somewhere, you know that Roe v. Wade just happened. And all the people that you talked to know that you were going to get a termination. So instead, you can say to your friend, close friends, obviously, hey, we can't get this done in our state. We're going to have to go somewhere else. We knew we we're going to have to pay out of pocket here. But man, now we got to get a hotel room and a flight. Like, is there any way you guys can help us out? And you would be surprised how many people would help you get these resources. How many people have companion flights and things like that and point they haven't even used? How many people have reward points? You, you've got to open your mouth and ask. And then let's not forget, you know, in addition to tapping out your savings and living month to month, you know, with this $4,300. We also have things that we can use for emergency. We don't like to take out retirement, but maybe we have to take out a portion of that retirement real quick to get this and float us so that we still have our savings over here and we are not behind on bills because you got, you got a little girl to think about and you can get this procedure done. Perhaps you need to sell some things that you have in your closet. Okay, to get some of these, to get these resources up at the last minute. And I know you don't want to have to think about that because you're like, I'm trying to get this procedure done. But the point I'm making is ask for financial assistance, get the procedure done and then do what you have to do later. Whether that's sell something, take out some of your retirement. There are things that you can do if you are, you know, either one of y'all are working in the household. Now, neither one of y'all working and you're living at home with your mama, then you need to go ask your mama, okay? Because then you don't might not have retirement. But assuming that you are a working family, you have some options there. And people do take out loans. They take out personal loans if they have to do those type of things. So you have some options. Don't ever think you don't have the option. You have options to do what you need to do if you want to do that. Now, Nicole, I know that because you are a practicing physician currently in the state of Texas, you cannot participate in this, but please email us back. And we will, if you don't have any options to pay for this, we will figure out a way. And I, I'm not going to say we, I will say I, because Nicole is a practicing physician in the state of Texas, and we don't want her getting sued before she leaves the good state of Texas. I will personally find a way to make sure that you get $4,300 to make sure that you have access to the, the services that you need. So, so generous. See, ask and you shall receive. All right, Janine. So what does your letter read? So mine actually has a title and it came off of our Reddit and it says, I'm scared I will never be able to have a family. It says Nicole and Janine. First, I love the podcast. Thank you for talking about all of the things. It says, it feels like a group chat with my girls. 
Nicole, you said a few weeks ago that you don't know what's going into Texas. Well, I feel like it's the entire South. I live in Mississippi and I'm scared. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for some years now. I suffer with PCOS. I have cysts on my ovaries and I've had several fibroids removed. So as you can imagine, it has not been easy. We have had numerous, and by numerous, I mean seven miscarriages, and we even had two stillbirths. While we understand that God will eventually bless us with a child, we also know that another non-viable pregnancy is a very real possibility. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, does it mean that I won't be able to have a medical abortion should I have another miscarriage? My husband and I are both from Mississippi and we don't want to move to start a family. What can we do? Signed, LaVonda. So LaVonda, first of all, I have taken care of several people that have had recurrent pregnancy losses. Okay. So, and I've had a miscarriage myself. So I feel for you and I understand that it may be very frustrating when you are going through the motions and you're wondering like, why has God not blessed me with a child yet? I mean, I, I get it, but I want to encourage you to get that thought out of your head because a lot of the, you know, anxiety that you're bringing triggers stress, the hormone, the stress hormone that can cause you to have issues with ovulation. So stress in itself is actually bad if you're trying to conceive. So I'm going to encourage you to stay positive on this. I'm also going to encourage you to get either a preconception consult with a maternal fetal medicine specialist like me or with the reproductive endocrinologist so you can weigh all of your options and have a thorough workup. And I won't get in the meat of that because I feel like I'm on pregnancy pro podcast right now, y'all. But make sure you're getting a workup so that you know if there's something going on. But let's say worst case scenario that you get pregnant and you have another miscarriage, meaning you had a baby with a heartbeat and now you go to your next appointment and the baby doesn't have a heartbeat anymore. Well, that would mean that you've had a miscarriage. A miscarriage is the same thing as a missed abortion. So can they then give you a pill to cause you to go ahead and deliver and, you know, clear the uterus? Yes, they can. Can they do a procedure called a dilation and curatage or a DNC to remove the pregnancy from the uterus? Yes, they can in any state because that is just removing the content of the uterus because you've already had the abortion naturally by yourself. So they wouldn't have to give you any medicine to cause the abortion, but they would basically be assisting you in delivering. Now, you do pose a good question saying specifically, can they give me the pill to cause me to have an abortion? What you probably really meant was, can they give me a pill to cause me to go into labor versus doing a procedure? Okay, because there's a lot of talk about the banning of the pill in general. But that pill is used, has so many off-slavery uses, including starting the induction of labor in the third trimester, that I don't think that that pill is going to be banned. It's not banned right now. So right now, in any state, they can give you the pill to cause you to go ahead and deliver. Now, what would happen is you probably need more than one physician to confirm that there's no heartbeat before you actually were put on uh, on that pill to cause you to deliver. And you probably would be in the hospital to initiate that. But no, you wouldn't have to go to another state to get that done because that's just a pill to cause you to deliver, not to cause the abortion. So as you know, I'm not the medical expert. So everything Nicole just said, follow that. But I would also 
suggest this. And I know that you said that you were born and raised in Mississippi and your husband was born and raised in Mississippi. You don't necessarily want to move. But honestly, I would assume that you're black um, based on the fact that you are writing into us. I would reconsider that. I would honestly reconsider that. I would reconsider the fact that you do you really want to raise children in a place where the laws are so restrictive. And I'm pretty sure from what I know of Mississippi that not the necessarily the best place for us as black people. I'm not saying that you that you shouldn't want to live there. I'm just saying maybe that's something that you should reconsider. I get it. Moving away from what you know and and home can be scary. But if you really want to start a family and you really want to raise black children, I would ask, is Mississippi the best place to raise them? Now, if you ask yourself that question and the answer is yes, then by all means, continue on with your your process in Mississippi. But I would just ask you to really think about, do you want to raise black children in Mississippi? It's a lot. It's a big question to ask, but I would ask it. Now, you know, I'm Mississippi. I'm a Mississippi girl. I might as well claim Mississippi. I'm a Louisiana girl, but I did medical school, undergrad and med school in New Orleans. And then I went over to Jackson, Mississippi and did my OBGYN residency as well as fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, aka Ole Miss. So I'm not going to tell you that good things don't come out of Mississippi, but I will tell you that Mississippi like a lot of the South, are going to be more restrictive when it comes to access to care. And they are a little bit more restrictive in how they allow, and I say allow very, very loosely, Black people to move around and move up. Okay, so you got to be very strategic with that thing. But I'm not saying that I don't agree that you have to move because I'm from the South and I like living in the South. But you do have to be very strategic with it. I I can't agree on that. And it if you're moving, you got to be like, where am I moving? There's a lot of the country now is red. And even that those that aren't red, that are sort of purplish in color, still going to have um, restrictive, um, you know, limited access to services. So, you know, it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know to me. All right, Johnny. So what did you learn new this week? So I learned a couple of things. So we'll start off with the not, I mean, it's not bad. They're all positive, actually. So end up on a positive note. Six states and the District of Columbia have no limits when it comes to abortion. There are no limits on when you can have an abortion. So as long as you are pregnant and it's safe, you will have access to an abortion in those six states and the District of Columbia. I will share with you what those six states are and then post them. But the six states are Alaska, Oregon, Colorado, New Mexico, New Jersey, Vermont, and then, of course, the District of Columbia. In those seven places, there's no limit on abortion. But something else that I just learned, and I learned it from MSNBC, shout out to Rachel Maddow, um, is that there is a place called Aid Access. And Aid Access is an overseas provider that provides abortion pills via the mail for those who may not have access to abortions in their area. There's also a Dutch doctor who does um, abortion services in international waters for those who do not have access to abortion. So there are a lot of people who are very well aware, even outside of our country, 
of what is going on and the inhumane nature of of this decision. And they are making abortion services available to us because they know that, you know, reproductive rights are human rights. They are basic human rights. This is something that I saw and I forgot to mention is that Dick Sporting Goods is offering um, assistance to any of their employees that may need to seek abortion services outside of the state that they reside in. So there are people, there are resources, there are things. If, As Nicole said, if you need help, ask for it because the help is out there. It seems like this is this is a very dark time, but there's help out there. There's access, there's help. What did you learn new this week, Nicole? Okay, so what I learned, um, just scandalous, honey. So there are some top Republicans who are so pro-life but happen to allegedly try to encourage their mistress to have abortions. So they sit here cheating, sleeping around, creeping, and then saying, can you have an abortion? I want, have, I want you to have my baby. I won't get caught. So, of course, Trump's uh, beloved lawyer, Michael Cohen, paid off his Playboy mistress and told her to have an abortion. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, Representative Tim Murphy, we remember that, he resigned after asking his mistress, uh, who he was having an affair with, to uh, have an abortion. And she outed him, blasted him for it. In uh, 2012, Republican uh, Scott DeHarlis, he was outed for supporting his ex-wife with getting multiple abortions and also slept with some of his patients, which led him to be fined by the medical board. And then Scott Lloyd, you know, he was a Trump director of refugee resettlement, which was micromanaging the abortion request of the, the teenagers and also paid his mistress to have an abortion. And then Jason Miller, who we know has been creeping up in the, in the limelight, he's a Trump strategist and senior advisor who actually dosed his mistress with the abortion pill without her knowledge, almost killing her, according to the New York Post. And uh, yeah, just scandalous, honey. Okay, are we ready for the motivational moment? Let's do it. And it says, and this is from me, men are okay with abortions as long as it's not the woman making the decisions to have one. And honestly, we've stood by and waited for the validation from men for everything we do, including what we do to our own bodies. How long will we sit around and hold our breaths and wait for decisions to be made that affects us? Let's speak up. Let's research ways to get involved and even run for office. It's time for women to start supporting women and stop waiting for a man to do something. Until we meet again. Pray, work, slay. And show off your melanated excellence. Bye! Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is produced by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson-Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or where you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. You can follow Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations on IG at Oh, That's Deep, BWC. Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.